Welcome to the congregation of Yahweh. We're passionate about declaring the truths that the Bible contains. It's for everyone. We we'll hope you'll enjoy and be enriched by this message. Most of you in here will remember Margaret Thatcher. Like or loathe her, she said some very interesting things, one-liners, such as to the Conservative Party in 1980, she said, the ladies not for turning. <laughs> Congregation of Yahweh, in spite of what lies ahead, in spite of who comes, in spite of who goes, I want to assure you, this church is not for turning. This church is not for turning. I don't care who you are and who is listening today and who is praying against us, this church is not for turning. Hallelujah. In the days of the end, pursuing personal desires, whether it's natural or spiritual, fulfilling only our personal ambitions, seeking to accumulate only material things that shape our world, loosens our grip on the things that truly matter, the holy things. We must hold fast to the holy things. There is much danger in becoming weary and tired, cold-hearted and unloving and simply playing at being the church. The question prevails, when Messiah returns as he will one day, Will he find faith on the earth? How many will he find, despite the long wait, who are faithful, faithful to his word, faithful to his spirit, and faithful to his church? The three churches I'll be looking at today, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, can be quite easily described as the dead church, the faithful church, and the lukewarm church, or the indifferent church. So that's what I plan talking about, certainly the first two points, and if I run out of steam by the third, I will sit down. Or if you run out of steam, I'll decide what to do. <laughs> Over the years, we've received teaching on the seven churches of Asia, haven't we? So my purpose today is merely to bring you a brief synopsis and overview of the three churches mentioned in Revelation 3 and to see what we can learn from them in the context of this week. As well as a call or a pleading, what we will also find or see from the messages is that the condition of each church 
is merely a reflection of the condition of the city in which the church operated. So before we look at the cities and the churches, let's just take a quick look for those of you who aren't familiar with this chapter or, or these chapters. Quick look at the geographical location of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation. And we'll see that the letters or the messages would have been carried from Patmos in a clockwise Barnabas direction around Asia Minor. You can see the seven churches there and number five, six, and seven is what I'm dealing with today. These messages were given to the Apostle John while he was exiled on the island of Patmos because of his witness to Yeshua, his Messiah, the Savior of the world, and because of the word of Yahweh. Our witness and our standing on the word will one day cost us. And if it doesn't, and if it isn't already, there may be well something wrong with our witness. And our stand is likely to be questionable at best. So let's just think about the dead church, the church in Sardis. So I'm just going to give you a bit of background information before we read some of the verses from this chapter. So I want you to picture this. The city was at the converging point of several inland roads. One road led northwest to Thyatira and then on to Pergamum. Another ran west to Smyrna, 54 miles away. A third ran east out to Phrygia. A fourth road ran southeast to Philadelphia. And the last road led to southwest to Ephesus, 63 miles away. So with all of these roads going in and out of town, lots of trade came through Tardis, Sardis. The trade it experienced became the main reason for its claim to wealth. The city was famous for its woolen, textile, and jewelry industry. The city of Sardis was actually in two locations. The city had been built originally on a mountain. And when its population outgrew that spot, a newer section had been built in the valley below. The newer section boasted a theater, a stadium, and a large temple to Artemis that had been started but never finished. The older part of the city on the mountain had become an emergency refuge for the city's inhabitants when under attack. Sardis was also known for its impressive necropolis or cemetery with hundreds of burial mounds. Now bear that picture in mind. In 17 AD, Sardis was devastated by an earthquake, but the Emperor Tiberius generously refunded them the taxes that inhabitants had paid for the prior five years and sent generous grants for the rebuilding of the city. It cost the people nothing in the end. With all of these Roman bailout funds, the city was easily rebuilt without the residents having to endure any financial hardship at all. So the few things we know so far when John wrote this letter was Sardis was rich and complacent 
Its residents were used to the easy life. The once great impregnable fortress was now only an ancient monument up on the hilltop. The city had been rebuilt in the valley, but there was no passion for life and no spirit. Now just turn to Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. Let's read this. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before Yahweh. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church in Sardis was on the surface a good-looking church. To the city's residents and to any visitor who might come to the city. And Yeshua was well aware of this when he said to them, I know your deeds or your works. You have a reputation for being alive, In all probability, the church was a beehive of organized activity. When Yeshua said you have a reputation for being alive, we have to presume that this church was lacking very little in the outward appearance. But it also had a reputation for being an active church. It was characterized by its abundant activity. No doubt people in Sardis or people traveling in from Ephesus or Thyatira or wherever else they were coming from, these followers of the way who are relocating, one of the reasons might well have been because this church in Sardis had a great reputation. It was probably well attended and well advertised, but more than this, it had a reputation for being alive. It was known as the vibrant church. And Yeshua acknowledged this in his address to them. But there was a serious problem which existed. It was, in spite of all its activity, actually dead. Have you ever seen a headless chicken? Have you ever been responsible for making that chicken headless? I thought there might be one or two, yeah. The first time I experienced this was in 2001 when I took a group of young people to Kenya. And we were invited to somebody's home and they wanted to give us a chicken. And JR, for those of you who remember JR, he volunteered to take the head of the chicken off. 
and we were all watching it, and the head was, he held the chicken down, and he sliced that head off, and he let go of the chicken, and the chicken ran violently in all of the maize fields around the home without its head on. I'd never seen that before. And I understand it's because of the reflex activity of the nervous system of that chicken. It was quite funny but sad at the same time. Do you know churches can run around frantically with little head shift or direction because of the spiritual nervous system believing that more activity produces more success. But it doesn't take long before that church runs out of steam. Why? Because the head is missing. Yeshua is not at the center, Asher, of that church. But we as individuals can also live our lives like that where we're frantically being busy in the name of the church or in the name of Yeshua, but sometimes our experience becomes more about religion than relationship. It's more about doing than being. And when this happens, we fall into the trap of desiring fruit without root. Desiring fruit without root. It's time to pay attention to our roots. Our relationship with Yeshua above everything we do for him under the guise of our love for him. Remember, he is the vine, we are the branches, and without him we can do nothing of eternal value. Wake up. Yeshua said, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. There was a little hope that remained. Not everything was dead. But what true life remained in Sardis was about to die, it seemed. And in all of this, Yeshua could see right through the heart of that church. And he said, wake up. The 21st century King James Version, and some other translate this verse a little differently. It says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before Yahweh. Do you know throughout the New Testament, there is no commandment that occurs more frequently than that to watch or to wake up. Paul says it's full time to wake up from sleep in Romans. And in Corinthians, be watchful, stand firm in your faith, he urges. Peter, the believer must be on the watch against the wiles of the devil. The believer must be on the watch against temptation. Watch and pray, said Yeshua, that you enter not into temptation. The New Testament urges the believer to be on the watch for the coming of his master. Watch therefore, said Yeshua, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The believer must be on the watch against false teaching, 
in Paul's last address to the elders of Ephesus, he warns them that grievous wolves will invade the flock from the outside, and from inside men will arise to speak perverse things. Therefore, he says, watch. However, nor must the believer forget that as he watches, so he is being watched. Yeshua says, I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. As we are watching, we must remember we are being watched from heaven. We are right in the direct line of our Father's gaze. He roams, his eyes roam across the earth, Chris, to see those whose hearts are totally committed to him. Do you know that he's looking for men and women to be his watchmen in this last hour? Those who are willing to sound an alarm on his holy mountain. And I ask you today, when he looks at you, what does he see? You know, Yeshua is looking for something from us. So often we regard him as the one to whom we look to when we have need. We look to him for his strength, his help, his support, his comfort. But he is looking for our love, our loyalty, and our service. Yeshua says, strengthen what remains. The situation in Sardis was not hopeless if they strengthened what remained. The church may have looked impressive on the outside and even on the inside, but like the unfinished temple to Artemis, the church's deeds were incomplete. It would appear that this church was great at starting things and not finishing them. D.L. Moody used to remark, I would rather say this one thing I do than to say these 40 things I dabble with. The church at Sardis was dabbling instead of doing. It no doubt had a dozen programs, none of which came to anything. Remember what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent, Yeshua says. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you if you do not wake up. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Do you know that even in the darkness, there still remained this ray of hope shining through? Even in Sardis, there was the faithful few who kept themselves unspotted from the world. Yeshua says you have a few who have not soiled their clothes. Yeshua called his flock little flock. You know, it's much easier to live a righteous life when you're surrounded by many honorable and righteous people. But the few in Sardis were the spiritual among the unspiritual, the sincere among the hypocrites, the humble among the proud, and the separated among the worldly. 
the, these were the saints who were leading pure, wholesome lives in the midst of corruption and compromise. When Abraham was pleading with Yahweh for Sodom, he appealed to Yahweh and he said, to slay the righteous with the wicked, far be it from you. Praise Yahweh that he will never abandon his search because of the faithful few. And they are never lost to his sight in the mass of those who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, I say. Do you know Yahweh will always be faithful to his remnant? When Yeshua returns to this earth, will he find faith on the earth? I say yes, he will. Yes, he will. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. These are the remnant, the faithful few who will one day become the aristocracy of heaven. The one who is victorious will be like them, dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. So in summary, where this church is concerned, the warning from this letter is that we do not grow comfortable in our churches, lest we find ourselves slowly dying. Are you comfortable today? I hope not. I hope not. Lest we find ourselves slowly dying. The encouragement to this church is that as long as there is a remnant, as long as there are those who are willing to strengthen the things that remain, then there is still hope. And if you today are one of those people who are willing to hold fast, to repent, to strengthen the things which remain. As long as you are part of that remnant, one day your very name will be acknowledged by Yeshua to his Father and before the angels. What an amazing thing that would be. So let's just think about the church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was never to attain greatness in worldly terms as it was off the normal trade routes. It's just a bit of background. Although it was on the road to eastern cities of Asia Minor, the city was often seen as an outpost of the empire of the time, being dubbed a missionary city. And it was founded as an open door to spread the Greek language and culture in the lands beyond. It stood between Rome and the Eastern world and was known as Little Athens because of its many gods and idols. Philadelphia had great characteristic which has left its mark upon this letter. It was on the edge of a great plain. I'll challenge you to say this word. Catechacormane. Try and say it. Catechacormane. Watch your teeth while you say it, by the way. <laughs> Catacormain, which was a great volcanic plain. It actually, the translation was a burned land because it bore the marks of the lava and the ashes of volcanoes then extinct. Such land is fertile, and as such, Philadelphia was the center of a great 
grape growing area and a producer of wines. As, as we've all already heard in AD 17, there came a great earthquake in that region which destroyed Sardis and other cities. And in Philadelphia, the tremors went on for years. Aftershocks were an everyday occurrence. Gaping cracks would appear on the walls of the houses. No, now one part of the city was in ruins, now the next. And most of the population lived outside the city in huts and feared to go on the streets of the city in case they were going to be killed by falling masonry. So those who still dared to live in the city were reckoned mad. They spent their time patching up these shaky buildings. And every so often, when the tremors came, they would run out of the city into the open spaces. People were waiting all the time for these tremors of the ground, ready to flee for their lives. The inhabitants were constantly going in, coming out, going in, coming out. Does that mean that the door or the gate of the city was always open? Or was it someone's job to be the key holder, ready at any moment to unlock or to lock the gate? Now turn to Revelation 3, verse 7 to 13, and let's read this message. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There are two key thoughts I want to take from this message to Philadelphia. One is about doors and the other is about holding fast. But let's first of all see the specific description Yeshua makes of himself when he presents himself to this particular church. It says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. We have in that single verse a fourfold description of Yeshua. And he, this one, had his eye on this church for some time, not because of its wealth, not because of its size, but because of its faithfulness. And he wants each member to know who he is 
and that he has come to bring them some good news. The words of the Holy One. He's the Holy One. He's set apart, perfect and pure. He's true. He cannot lie. He keeps his word. He's fully trustworthy at all times and in every way. He has the key of David. Keys and locks and doors are a sign of power and authority. Yeshua holds the keys, not to Philadelphia, but to the house of David. Remember, Yahweh told David that he would establish his kingdom and his son would reign on the throne forever. Yeshua is the one who takes the seat, the eternal throne. He's the one who opens and shuts the doors. He's sovereign over all. He's powerful. He's able to open. He's able to shut. This is the one who holds the keys. And this is the one to whom the church will one day give an account. Including us. Let's just think about doors for a minute. Do you know throughout our lives there will always be doors that open. And there will always do be doors that shut. There will always be doors that close behind us, and there will always be doors that will open before us. Sometimes Yahweh opens doors to us. Other times, he closes doors to us. And there are times when he chooses to close a door that we persistently try to keep open. We just can't accept that something is not his will for us. And so we metaphorically wedge our foot in that door so it doesn't close entirely. We keep our options open. And so we keep that door ajar when Yahweh wants it closed. Are you ever guilty of that? Have you been? Sometimes we find ourselves in a revolving door. It just keeps going round and round and round. And we simply refuse to get off it. Over my years of ministry, especially when I was a bit younger, people used to talk to me a lot more back then than they do now, um, for some reason. But I have sometimes talked with individuals over the years about the same problem, same issue, year in, year out, year in, year out. And it's like they're stuck in a revolving door, unable or even unwilling to get off. Do you know, church, it's time we were either fully in or fully out. Do you know that? It's time we were fully in or we're fully out. Stop going round in circles, going nowhere and achieving nothing. You're either fully committed or you're not. And oh, what Yahweh could do with a heart that is fully committed to him. What he could do, what he wants to do with a heart that is fully committed to him. If Yahweh opens a door to you, no man or woman can shut it, you know. 
doors into the will of Yahweh for our lives will always remain open to us unless, of course, Yahweh closes the door because of our refusal to enter. And sometimes that does happen. When Yahweh closes a door, no one can open it. It remains shut. Do you know that sometimes, and I have seen this over the years, there are times when Yahweh opens a door for someone to leave the church. And there could be many reasons for this. But sometimes when a soul is unwilling to submit to the words of this book and to the order laid out in this book, persistently refusing to submit. There have been times when I believe Yahweh has opened wide the door and that individual has had to go. How do I know that Yahweh opens doors? Because the scriptures declare it. Acts 14, verse 27, he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, a great and effective door has opened to me. 2 Corinthians 2, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel, a door was opened up to me by Yeshua. Colossians, that Yahweh would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Messiah. Doors will always open up before us. I ask you today, what door is in front of you today as an individual and as a church? I ask you, have you entered the door or the gateway to the new vineyard yet? This is the vision of this congregation. It centers around house churches and apostolic teams, although we need to speak a little bit more about that. But I ask you, have you entered the door of the new vineyard yet? I know there are some people who are very happy with the entrance to this new vineyard. But they remain just happy and still refuse to enter. As long as everyone else enters, that's fine. I'll just keep my watching from the outside looking in. And the door remains open for now. Yeshua wants us to live like the Philadelphians in the city. Sorry, he doesn't want us to live like the Philadelphians in the city, living in fear for when the next spiritual tremor or change might occur, running in and out of doors, or for that matter, refusing to move because of sheer panic or can I say, lack of faith? If Yahweh brings us to a door and opens up that door to us, we must have the faith to enter. Regardless sometimes of what common sense or logic says to us, we must have the faith to enter. We must have the faith to enter 
regardless of what our bank balance tells us. We must have the faith to enter. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Yeshua said to this church, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Yeshua is aware of this church. Firstly, that they have little power. This is not an insult or a rebuke. It's just an acknowledgement that they'd had very little influence in their culture. They were small in size. And Yeshua wanted them to know that the opposition they were facing was not their fault. Their suffering was not a lack of faith or being disobedient to his word. They kept his word. They stood firm. They faced persecution because they were faithful. Congregation, it's important that we are faithful to the vision of this congregation. Separated. Separated from the world. Separated from mainstream Christianity. We are separated whether we like it or not. And if we don't like it, you know the, the phrase? <laughs> Listen, I don't care how big or how small we are. I know what Yahweh has given to this congregation and by his grace, whether we are 12 or 1200, I want to be faithful to what he has called us to do in this age at this time. It doesn't matter the size of us. What matters is that we are faithful to the end that what he has given to us. Hold fast to what you've been taught. Don't let go of it. Do you know it might be that it's not so much the world, but the church that becomes the church's biggest enemy? I'm going to say that again. Do you know that it's not so much the world, but the church that might become the church's biggest enemy. We're very well aware of what the world throws at us. It's evil, it's cunning disguises. But this type of warfare, we are used to fighting. We are aware of it. But when our biggest battles, our biggest threats, our biggest oppositions and enemies come from those who call themselves the church, Churches who have watered down the truth and embraced a lie succumb to the pressures of society and modern thinking, then we're in a different battle altogether. It's the enemy within that we need to become more aware of. It's the unfaithful and the dead and the lukewarm churches who might look relevant and religious on the outside, but ignore the unadulterated truth of the scriptures. It's that enemy within our ranks who may well become our biggest threat. And when this happens, as it surely will, 
mark my word, as it surely will, we need to hold more firmly onto the things we've been taught. Spurgeon says the word of Yahweh is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. The Father has delighted to share with us some mysteries of the scriptures of the kingdom. Truths that have been covered over for centuries. But Yahweh has opened them up to us. We don't need to be ashamed of that fact. We don't need to excuse it or defend it. We just need to let it loose and live it. The truth of the scriptures, when uncaged like a lion, can take care of itself. It has done so for centuries. If you hold on to what you've received, to what you believe, there is a crown of righteousness waiting for you. You don't want any man to steal your crown, do you? You know, many people in the Bible have lost their place to someone else because they had shown that they were not fit or able to hold it. Esau lost his place to Jacob. Reuben, unstable as water, lost his place to Judah. Saul lost his place to David. Shevna lost his place to Eliakim. Judas lost his place to Matthias. Yeshua is saying, don't give up. Don't give up your crown that easily. Endure, hold fast, hold on, get a grip. To the one who overcomes, Yeshua says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. We know that from history, Philadelphia suffered that great earthquake in AD 17. And there were others as well. And it's hard for a pillar to stand when the ground beneath it shakes. But Yeshua promises to make his church into an immovable pillar. Even the spiritual darkness of our world, when it causes the ground beneath us to shake, the pillar will remain firm. Yeshua says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What a promise. What a security. What a hope we have in Yeshua. And the very last promise in this verse, to, to those who overcome in this life, I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city, the new name of Yeshua. What does this mean other than that? Through that name, that precious name, which will literally be written on us. Can you imagine that? That name will be written on us. And as such, we will be marked out as his own. And our position will be sealed forever and eternity. No longer running in and out. But we stand in the place ordained from us from the beginning of the age. For all eternity, we'll be marked as Yahweh's own treasured possession forever. I want to go on to the last church, but I'm, I'm going to leave some of this stuff out. Church and Laodicea. So you can quickly glance some of the things that mark the city, known for its abundant wealth. Medical school produced a highly valued ointment for weak eye. 
Most of the city's wealth came from its banking, wool use, and many of the clothing products of the city. And there were no natural sources of water. Where the water was concerned, it had to be piped in from hot springs six miles away. And that water that left Hierapolis was hot at the time it left. But by the time it reached Laodicea, it was only lukewarm. It was barely drinkable, and some even described it as nauseating. But let's just read what the message was to this church. Verse 14, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, Yahweh. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, I've become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve. Do you see how Yeshua was speaking into the condition of this city? He made it relevant. As many as I love, he says, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The reason for their lukewarm state was basically pride, which led to a state of being indifferent towards the holy things. I would just say that. It was pride in its wealth. It was pride in its clothing. It was, it was pride in its, in its medical school. But it led to an indifferent attitude towards the holy things. Hence this letter. Yeshua hit this church where he knew it would hurt. Not because he despised them, but because he loved them. He loved the church. I wonder if you know your own poverty today. I wonder if you're aware of your own poverty. Without him, we are poor, wretched, miserable souls. We have nothing to pride ourselves in other than who we have as our king. If we have any pride, it should only be because of him. Where this church was concerned, money, wealth became a massive obstacle. But do you know the holy things cannot be bought with money? Do you know the holy things cannot be bought with possessions or anything we accumulate in this life? That is why Isaiah cried out, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. 
the holy things cost your life only. That's what it costs. But more than that, it costs Yeshua, his life before us. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, he says. We must see this message in the context of love, not of judgment or condemnation. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And then he goes on to paint a beautiful picture of himself standing outside the door of this church. And he's saying, behold, I'm knocking. If any man hears me and will open up, I will come in and have unbridled fellowship with him. It was to any man and to any woman who will hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Here in the book of Revelation is Yeshua, the lover of men's souls, knocking at the door of the hearts of men. Yeshua is still today the seeker of men's hearts. And he demonstrated that desire, that love, by dying for men's sins. Not so the result would be an indifferent, apathetic, dull, and meaningless life of service. Far be it that the son of Yahweh would die for a church, only for a church to live like that. But he died that he might create a life worth, worthy of living, productive in service, holy and blameless, leaving a lasting mark and a footprint wherever the church moved, wherever it breathed, wherever it spoke. That's why he died. That's why he died. To the unsaved, and I'm also talking at those who are pretending to be saved today, who are pretending to be churchgoers, but they haven't had that lasting, forever, eternal transformation that takes place with true salvation. Yeshua is saying to you today, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The door of salvation is always open to sinners. They don't need to knock. But the church, the door of the church of Laodicea, was closed in the face of Yeshua. He stood on the outside knocking. He was seeking to enter a church that bore his name. He was still on the outside, although the church bore his name, yet they lacked sincere spirituality, sincere holiness, and sincere impact. The distressing letter to the Laodicean church was Yeshua knocking at the door of this church. Let me come in and change things for you. Yeshua makes the appeal to anyone who would hear. It only takes one person to move. Yahweh can do great things in a church even through one dedicated, sacrificed individual. Salvation is and always has been personally, personal and everyone must decide for him or herself whether to accept or reject Yeshua's invitation. In conclusion,
jedes Haus in Nähe. Let him hear. Are you hearing me today? Are you, more importantly, are you hearing him? In closing, I want to speak not to the national church so much, but to local churches and specifically to the leaders, to Blythe, to Hitchin, to Chelmsford in London, to Nottingham, and to each separate house church within Nottingham, and to Derby, to the leaders. If Yeshua was to send a personalized message to your church today, to your church, the one that you are responsible for. I wonder what he would say to it. I wonder what he would say to you. I wonder what he would see. What does he see? What does he see? One thing I do know is that he hasn't given up on us. I know that. It's a good starting point. Else why would he show us a picture of a new vineyard? This gives us hope and assurance that we have a future in these end times. Do you know the congregation of Yahweh is not done yet? Do you know that? Sometimes we behave like we feel we're done. We're not. There is a reason Yahweh has raised us up. And this might be a more important time in our history than any other decade that we've experienced. It could well be that we have been raised up for this moment. Yes, the future might seem somewhat different to our past in terms of the landscape, but nevertheless, at the same time, it's characterized by the holy things. The things that have been revealed to us. Those precious truths do not change. They go with us into the new vineyard. They go with us before into any door that might open up before us. Those holy things do not change. Even if the landscape does, members of this congregation, stop fearing about where we're going. Our pastures are new, but the holy things that have characterized this congregation are ever old. They go with us into new pastures. Have confidence, be assured, this church is not for turning. Not while ever I'm here, anyway. I believe we could be touching on something that could be revolutionary for us. I wonder what you need to do today. I wonder what we need to do. I think if we've heard we might need to do something about it. We might need to respond in some way. Churches I'm talking to, leaders I'm talking to also. But first, but to finish with, I also want to talk to those who might need to make that very first step, that decision to give their hearts and lives to Yeshua. I said before, you need not knock. I know there is at least one person in here who needs to make that first decision. Yeshua said, come to me all who are weary, and I will give you rest. 
Tozer says, rest is not something we do, but something that comes to us when we cease to do. Maybe for years, you've constantly strived and worked and sought and failed time and time again, and you find yourself weary and exhausted with little strength. Yeshua says, come to me and I will give you rest. Stop fighting me. Stop looking elsewhere. Turn to me with your whole heart. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Thank you for spending some time with us. We hope that you've been encouraged and inspired. We pray that what you've heard will transform your life.